Chapter 6 of An Introduction to the History of Science by Walter Libby. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 6 Scientific Method Gilbert, Galileo, Harvey, Descartes. The previous chapter has given some indication of the range of the material which was demanding scientific investigation at the end of the 16th and the beginning of the 17th century. The same period witnessed a conscious development of the method or methods of investigation. As we have seen, Bacon wrote in 1620 a considerable work, The New Logic, Novum Organum, so called to distinguish it from the traditional deductive logic. It aimed to furnish the organ or instrument to indicate the correct mental procedure to be employed in the discovery of natural law. Some 17 years later, the illustrious Frenchman René Descartes, 1596-1650, published his Discourse on the Method of Rightly Conducting the Reason and Seeking Truth in the Sciences. Both of these philosophers illustrated by their own investigations the efficiency of the methods which they advocated. Before 1620, however, the experimental method had already yielded brilliant results in the hands of other scientists. We pass over Leonardo da Vinci and many others in Italy and elsewhere, whose names should be mentioned if we were tracing this method to its origin. By 1600, William Gilbert, 1540-1603, physician to Queen Elizabeth, before whom, as a picture in his birthplace illustrates, he was called to demonstrate his discoveries, had published his work on the magnet, the outcome of about 18 years of critical research. He may be considered the founder of electrical science. Galileo, who discovered the fundamental principles of dynamics and thus laid the basis of modern physical science, although he did not publish his most important work till 1638, had, even before the close of the 16th century, prepared the way for the announcement of his principles by years of strict experiment. By the year 1616, William Harvey, 1578-1657, physician at the court of James I, and later of Charles I, had, as the first modern experimental physiologist, gained important results through his study of the circulation of the blood. It is not without significance that both Gilbert and Harvey had spent years in Italy where, as we have implied, the experimental method of scientific research was early developed. Harvey was at Padua, 1598-1602, within the time of Galileo's popular professorate, and may well have been inspired by the physicist to explain on dynamical principles the flow of blood through arteries and veins. This conjecture is the more probable, since Galileo, like Harvey and Gilbert, had been trained in the study of medicine. Bacon, in turn, had in his youth learned something of the experimental method on the continent of Europe, and later was well aware of the studies of Gilbert and Galileo, as well as of Harvey, who was indeed his personal physician. Although these facts seem to indicate that method may be transmitted in a nation or a profession, or through personal association, there still remains some doubt as to whether anything so intimate as the mental procedure involved in invention and in the discovery of truth can be successfully imparted by instruction. The individuality of the man of genius engaged in an investigation must remain a factor difficult to analyze. 
Bacon, whose purpose was to hasten man's empire over nature through increasing the number of inventions and discoveries, recognized that the method he illustrated is not the sole method of scientific investigation. In fact, he definitely states that the method set forth in the Novum Organum is not original or perfect or indispensable. He was aware that his method tended to the ignoring of genius and to the putting of intelligences on one level. He knew that, although it is desirable for the investigator to free his mind from prepossessions and to avoid premature generalizations, interpretation is the true and natural work of the mind when free from impediments, and that the conjecture of the man of genius must at times anticipate the slow process of painful induction. As we shall see in the 19th chapter, the psychology of today does not know enough about the workings of the mind to prescribe a fixed mental attitude for the investigator. Nevertheless, Bacon was not wrong in pointing out the virtues of a method which he and many others turned to good account. Let us first glance, however, at the activities of those scientists who preceded Bacon in the employment of the experimental method. Gilbert relied in his investigations on oft-repeated and verifiable experiments, as can be seen from his work De Magneta. He directs the experimenter, for example, to take a piece of lodestone of convenient size and turn it on a lathe to the form of a ball. It may then be called a terella or earthken. Place it on a piece of iron wire. The ends of the wire move round its middle point and suddenly come to a standstill. Mark with chalk the line along which the wire lies still and sticks. Then move the wire to other spots on the terella and repeat your procedure. The lines thus marked, if produced, will form meridians, all coming together at the poles. Again, place the magnet in a wooden vessel, and then set the vessel afloat in a tub or cistern of still water. The north pole of the stone will seek approximately the direction of the south pole of the earth, and so forth. It was on the basis of scores of experiments of this sort, carried on from about 1582 till 1600, that Gilbert felt justified in concluding that the terrestrial globe is a magnet. This theory has since that time been abundantly confirmed by navigators. The full title of his book is Concerning the Magnet and Magnetic Bodies and Concerning the Great Magnet, the Earth, a New Natural History, Physiologica, demonstrated by many arguments and experiments. It does not detract from the credit of Gilbert's result to state that his initial purpose was not to discover the nature of magnetism or electricity, but to determine the true substance of the earth, the innermost constitution of the globe. He was fully conscious of his own method and speaks with scorn of certain writers who, having made no magnetical experiments, constructed ratiocinations on the basis of mere opinions, and old womanishly dreamed the things that were not. Galileo, 1564 to 1642, even as a child displayed something of the inventor's ingenuity, and when he was 19, shortly after the beginning of Gilbert's experiments, his keen perception for the phenomena of motion led to his making a discovery of great scientific moment. He observed the lamp swinging by a long chain in the cathedral of his native city of Pisa, and noticed that, no matter how much the range of the oscillations might vary, their times were constant. 
He verified his first impressions by counting his pulse, the only available timepiece. Later, he invented simple pendulum devices for timing the pulse of patients, and even made some advances in applying his discovery in the construction of pendulum clocks. In 1859, he was appointed professor of mathematics in the University of Pisa, and within a year or two established through experiment the foundations of the science of dynamics. As early as 1590, he put on record in a Latin treatise concerning motion, de motu, his descent from the theories of Aristotle in reference to moving bodies, confuting the philosopher both by reason and ocular demonstration. Aristotle had held that two moving bodies of the same sort and in the same medium have velocities in proportion to their weights. Reader's Note The following discussion refers to a simple geometrical diagram which appears in the text. End of note. If a moving body, whose weight is represented by B, be carried through the line C-E, which is divided in the point D, if, also, the moving body is divided according to the same proportion as line C-E is in the point D, it is manifest that in the time taken to carry the whole body through C-E, the part will be moved through C-D. Galileo said that it is as clear as daylight that this view is ridiculous, for who would believe that when two lead spheres are dropped from a great height, the one being a hundred times heavier than the other, if the larger took an hour to reach the earth, the smaller would take a hundred hours, or that if, from a high tower, two stones, one twice the weight of the other, should be pushed out at the same moment, the larger would strike the ground while the smaller was still midway? His biography tells that Galileo, in the presence of professors and students, dropped bodies of different weights from the height of the Leaning Tower of Pisa to demonstrate the truth of his views. If allowance be made for the friction of the air, all bodies fall from the same height in equal times. The final velocities are proportional to the times. The spaces passed through are proportional to the squares of the times. The experimental basis of the last two statements was furnished by means of an inclined plane down a smooth groove in which a bronze ball was allowed to pass, the time being ascertained by means of an improvised water clock. Galileo's mature views on dynamics received expression in a work published in 1638, Mathematical Discourses and Demonstrations Concerning Two New Sciences Relating to Mechanics and Local Movements. It treats of cohesion and resistance to fracture, strength of materials, and uniform, accelerated, and projectile motion, dynamics. The discussion is in conversation form. The opening sentence shows Galileo's tendency to base theory on the empirical. It might be freely translated thus. Large scope for intellectual speculation, I should think, would be afforded, gentlemen, by frequent visits to your famous Venetian dockyard, Arsenale, especially that part where mechanics are in demand, seeing that there every sort of instrument and machine is put to use by numbers of workmen, among whom, taught both by tradition and their own observation, there must be some very skillful and also able to talk. The view of the shipbuilders, that a large galley before being set afloat is in greater danger of breaking under its own weight than a small galley, is the starting point of this most important of Galileo's contributions to science. Vesalius, 1514 to 1564, 
had in his work on the structure of the human body, De Humani Corporis Fabrica, 1543, shaken the authority of Galen's anatomy. It remained for Harvey, on the basis of the new anatomy, to improve upon the Greek physician's experimental physiology. Harvey professed to learn and teach anatomy, not from books, but from dissections, not from the dogmas of the philosophers, but from the fabric of nature. There have come down to us notes of his lectures on anatomy, delivered first in 1616. A brief extract will show that even at that date he had already formulated a theory of the circulation of the blood. Quote, By the structure of the heart, it appears that the blood is continually transfused through the lungs to the aorta, as by the two clacks of a water ram for raising water. It is shown by ligature that there is continuous motion of the blood from arteries to veins. Whence, it is demonstrated that there is continuous motion of the blood in a circle affected by the beat of the heart. It was not till 1628 that Harvey published his anatomical disquisition on the motion of the heart and blood in animals. It gives the experimental basis of his conclusions. If a live snake be laid open, the heart will be seen pulsating and propelling its contents. Compress the large vein entering the heart, and the part intervening between the point of constriction and the heart becomes empty, and the organ pales and shrinks. Remove the pressure, and the size and color of the heart are restored. Now compress the artery leading from the organ, and the part between the heart and the point of pressure, and the heart itself, become distended and take on a deep purple color. The course of the blood is evidently from the vena cava through the heart to the aorta. Harvey, in his investigations, made use of many species of animals, at least 87. It was believed by some, before Harvey's demonstrations, that the arteries were hollow pipes carrying air from the lungs throughout the body, although Galen had shown by cutting a dog's trachea, inflating the lungs and tying the trachea, that the lungs were an enclosing sac which retained the air. Harvey, following Galen, held that the pulmonary artery, carrying blood to the lungs from the right side of the heart, and the pulmonary veins, carrying blood from the lungs to the left side of the heart, intercommunicate in the hidden porosities of the lungs and through minute inosculations. In man, the vena cava carries the blood to the right side of the heart, the pulmonary artery inosculates with the pulmonary veins, which convey it to the left side of the heart. This muscular pump drives it into the aorta. It still remains to be shown that in the limbs, the blood passes from the arteries to the veins. Bandage the arm so tightly that no pulse is felt at the wrist. The hand appears at first natural, then grows cold. Loose the bandage sufficiently to restore the pulse. The hand and forearm become suffused and swollen. In the first place, the supply of blood from the deep-lying arteries is cut off. In the second case, the blood returning by the superficial veins is dammed back. In the limbs, as in the lungs, the blood passes from artery to vein by anastomoses and porosities. All these arteries have their source in the aorta. All these veins pour their stream ultimately into the vena cava. The veins have valves which prevent the blood flowing except toward the heart. Again, the veins and arteries form a connected system. 
for through either a vein or an artery all the blood may be drained off. The arguments by which Harvey supported his views were various. The opening clause of his first chapter, when I first gave my mind to vivisection as a means of discovering the motions and uses of the heart, throws a strong light on his special method of experimental investigation. Bacon, stimulated by what he calls philanthropia, always aimed, as we have seen, to establish man's control over nature. But all power of a high order depends on an understanding of the essential character or law of heat, light, sound, gravity, and the like. Nothing short of a knowledge of the underlying nature of phenomena can give science advantage over chance in hitting upon useful discoveries and inventions. It is, therefore, natural to find him applying his method of induction, his special method of true induction, to the investigation of heat. In the first place, let there be mustered, without premature speculation, all the instances in which heat is manifested. Flame, lightning, sun's rays, quick lime sprinkled with water, damp hay, animal heat, hot liquids, bodies subjected to friction. Add to these instances in which the heat seems to be absent, as moon's rays, sun's rays on mountains, oblique rays in the polar circle. Try the experiment of concentrating on a thermoscope by means of a burning glass, the moon's rays. Try with a burning glass to concentrate the heat from hot iron, from common flame, from boiling water. Try a concave glass with the sun's rays to see whether a diminution of heat results. Then make record of other instances in which heat is found in varying degrees. For example, an anvil grows hot under the hammer. A thin plate of metal under continuous blows might grow red like ignited iron. Let this be tried as an experiment. After the presentation of these instances, induction itself must be set to work to find out what factor is ever present in the positive instances. What factor is ever wanting in the negative instances? What factor always varies in the instances which show variation? According to Bacon, it is in the process of exclusion that the foundations of true induction are laid. We can be certain, for example, that the essential nature of heat does not consist in light and brightness, since it is present in boiling water and absent in the moon's rays. The induction, however, is not complete till something positive is established. At this point in the investigation, it is permissible to venture an hypothesis in reference to the essential character of heat. From a survey of the instances, all and each, it appears that the nature of which heat is a particular case is motion. This is suggested by flame, simmering liquids, and excitement of heat by motion, the extinction of fire by compression, and so forth. Motion is the genus of which heat is the species. Heat itself, its essence, is motion and nothing else. It remains to establish its specific differences. This accomplished, we arrive at the definition. Heat is a motion, expansive, restrained, and acting in its strife upon the smaller particles of bodies. Bacon, glancing toward the application of this discovery, adds, quote, if in any natural body you can excite a dilating or expanding motion, and can so repress this motion and turn it back upon itself, that the dilation shall not proceed equally, but have its way at one part and be counteracted in another, you will undoubtedly generate heat." 
The reader will recall that Bacon looked for the invention of instruments that would generate heat solely by motion. Descartes was a philosopher and mathematician. In his Discourse on Method and his Rules for the Direction of the Mind, 1628, he laid emphasis on deduction rather than on induction. In the subordination of particulars to a general principles, he experienced a satisfaction akin to the sense of beauty or the joy of artistic production. He speaks enthusiastically of that pleasure which one feels in truth, and which in this world is about the only pure and unmixed happiness. At the same time, he shared Bacon's distrust of the Aristotelian logic and maintained that ordinary dialectic is valueless for those who desire to investigate the truth of things. There is a need of a method for finding out the truth. He compares himself to a smith forced to begin at the beginning by fashioning tools with which to work. In his method of discovery, he determined to accept nothing as true that he did not clearly recognize to be so. He stood against assumptions and insisted on rigid proof. Trust only what is completely known. Attain a certitude equal to that of arithmetic and geometry. This attitude of strict criticism is characteristic of the scientific mind. Again, Descartes was bent on analyzing each difficulty in order to solve it, to neglect no intermediate steps in the deduction, but to make the enumeration of details adequate and methodical. Preserve a certain order. Do not attempt to jump from the ground to the gable, but rise gradually from what is simple and easily understood. Descartes' interest was not in the several branches of mathematics. Rather, he wished to establish a universal mathematics, a general science relating to order and measurement. He considered all physical nature, including the human body, as a mechanism capable of explanation on mathematical principles. But his immediate interest lay in numerical relationships and geometrical proportions. Recognizing that the understanding was dependent on the other powers of the mind, Descartes resorted in his mathematical demonstrations to the use of lines because he could find no method, as he says, more simple or more capable of appealing to the imagination and senses. He considered, however, that in order to bear the relationships in memory, or to embrace several at once, it was essential to explain them by certain formulae, the shorter the better. And for this purpose, it was requisite to borrow all that was best in geometrical analysis and algebra, and to correct the errors of one by the other. Descartes was, above all, a mathematician, and as such he may be regarded as a forerunner of Newton and other scientists. At the same time, he developed an exact scientific method, which he believed applicable to all departments of human thought. These long chains of reasoning, he says, quite simple and easy, which geometers are wont to employ in the accomplishment of their most difficult demonstrations, led me to think that everything which might fall under the cognizance of the human mind might be connected together in the same manner, and that, provided only one should take care not to receive anything as true which was not so, and if one were always careful to preserve the order necessary for deducing one truth from another, there would be none so remote at which he might not at last arrive, or so concealed which he might not discover. End of chapter 6